What do other people think of you? Any idea what people think of you? Maybe people at school, at work or at home. What do other people think of you? How do they rank you? How do, how do you compare with other people? Does it matter to you? Is it something you think about much? Comparisons, what other people think of us, for most of us, is a big issue in our lives. Is that wrong? Does it matter? Is there a, a better way than living trying to impress others? Is greatness a matter of what other people think of you, or is there a better way of achieving greatness? Well, let's hear what Jesus says about these things as we go through this account of him teaching his disciples at that Last Supper on the night before he was executed. Would you come with me again to Luke chapter 22? And we're going to focus on verse 24 to 30. We're going to go through the narrative, the account of what was going on around that meal table on that night before Jesus was executed. And as we go through the narrative, we'll learn what Jesus is teaching us. So, first of all, let's hear the way of the world's kingdoms. This is verse 24 to 25. We have the way of the world's kingdoms. Jesus and his disciples have had a Passover meal, a Passover meal that Jesus has adapted to point to himself uh, and to say he is the real Passover lamb. He's going to die, be sacrificed to bring in the kingdom of God. Well, he's hardly finished speaking. The wine's hardly only just been put down. They're still sitting around, well, actually lying around the table when an argument breaks out. Which of them is going to be the greatest? Verse 24. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. You see, they've they've heard the kingdom of God is coming and they are rightly excited and they're wrongly concerned to know what will their position be in it. Who will have the best place? That Jesus is about to die, that it's a kingdom brought about by suffering and humility seems to have slipped their notice. That's something we can easily be like. We hear the Bible and we take in the bits that suit us and the bits that don't suit us and don't fit our way of thinking, we brush them aside or maybe even don't notice them. And this results in them behaving so inappropriately. That's an understatement, really. It's the evening before the Lord is crucified. The greatest event in all history is going to happen by the immortal dying. And here are these little men fussing about which of them is going to be the greatest. It's so inappropriate. But if you were there back then, would you be joining in the argument? The way to tell is not to speculate about what you would do if you were transported back to that time. The way to tell is by asking what you have been like in your life. Let's take some examples from church life, as here we have believers gathered together round a table what about when we gather together would you ever use the prayer meeting to show that you're in the know about an issue you've got inside information to impress people by your prayer to pray with an eye to what do they think of you and the way you pray how inappropriate 
when the prayer meeting is supposed to be us unitedly expressing to God our weakness and need. What about when we sing? There we are, supposed to be singing to ascribe glory to God. But are we ever singing to attract attention to our performance? Well, for some of us, that'd be very hard to do, given what our singing is like. So here's one closer to home for me. We are like those disciples if we're preaching or teaching or giving a children's talk, which is supposed to be a jar of clay displaying the treasure, which is Christ. But instead, our mind is on what am I displaying of how good I am at preaching or teaching or this children's talk? What about serving? Well, we might call it serving, activity in the church that's supposed to be serving others, but it's really about getting noticed. And what do people think of me? Do they appreciate me? You're like those disciples if your giving is about showing that you are a person who gives help, not a person who needs help. You know, people can be very generous, but it, a lot of it be about... I'm not a person who needs help. I'm a person in control who gives help to others. Well, the list could go on and on and on, because if what's at your heart is I must be noticed, others must think well of me, then there are so many ways you can put that attitude into practice in church life or anywhere in life. What does Jesus say about it? Have a look at verse 25. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. He's saying, look, that is the attitude of those who are far from God. That is the way of the world's kingdoms. We don't need to know what rulers in the Near East 2,000 years ago were like. We can see this all around us. Today, if you've ever watched the programme The Apprentice, the way the young contestants boast, everything I touch turns to sold. Well, that makes you cringe, these boastful young people. But they're just an exaggeration of the self-promotion that's going on all around us. Now we're confined to our houses, an awful lot of life goes on over social media. What is so much of it about? Showing your achievements your filtered Instagram pictures of how wonderful your life is, seeing how many likes you get, looking out for who might share what you've put on. So much grasping to be considered great, to be ranked highly by others. This is the water we're swimming in. This is the society we're soaking in. And Jesus says, verse 26, but... You are not to be like that. It's put so definitely. It's so emphatic. But you are not to be like that. And so we need to work at not being shaped by this characteristic of our society. And if we're honest, it's not just out there in our society. If that's a fire, our hearts are very flammable material that each easily catch that fire. We need to... Take actions like resist checking those likes, or better still, 
limit your use of social media drastically. Avoid making those comparisons with other people. Don't let your mind dwell on those thoughts of how do I compare and what do they think of me? Well, that's the way of the world's kingdoms. Let's move on secondly to the way of Christ's kingdom. This is verse 26, the way of Christ's kingdom. We've been warned by a wrong example. Now we have the positive instead. Verse 26, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. The greatest should be like the youngest. We could easily misunderstand that because we live in a society that thinks it values the young. I'm not so sure it really does, but it does flatter the young. It is a youth orientated society. If you go to Ikea, it's got a big sign up on the wall. Children are the most important people in the world. That's wrong on a whole load of levels. Sorry, children, you are not the most important people in the world. But in that society, it was obvious children were not the most important. They were regarded as bottom of the pile, to be seen and not heard, the least important. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in my kingdom, be like that. I should actually rephrase that because it could it could be misunderstood. Jesus is not saying if you want to rise to a great position in my kingdom, First, you must prove yourself by lowly service. Jesus is saying faithful service in a lowly way is true greatness. Did you get that? That's really important. That's really key to all this message. He's not saying serve in a humble way so that you can then be promoted to greatness. He's not saying serve in a humble way so people might notice you and think you're great. He's saying this, serving in a humble way is itself true greatness. There's the principle we've got to get. Serving in a humble way is itself true greatness, even if no one but God notices it. Let's think of some examples of true greatness in God's kingdom. Children, do you know your geography? You know about India? Massive country, billions of people living there mostly Hindus, but there are quite a lot of Christians. How did Christianity get to India? Well, here's one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways. There was once a teenager called John War, and he was working as an apprentice, learning to make shoes. And at the workbench alongside him was another teenager called William. Now, John War was a Christian, and William was not. And John War would try to speak to William and persuade him of the truth. But William wasn't having anything of it. He looked down on this John War and his Christianity. He thought he was superior to him. But John persisted. And eventually William turned to the Lord Jesus. And eventually this William, whose surname was Carey, William Carey, became a great missionary to India. And, and we now think he's great. But at the time, well, people in the church thought he's a foolish young man who's got ideas above his station. When he went out to India, people said, oh, we hear you were just a shoemaker back home. To which he said, no, I wouldn't say I was a shoemaker, really just a cobbler. But God used him to spread the good news in India. 
And I reckon one of the reasons God used him was because William had a sister back in England. And she was so ill and disabled, she couldn't leave her home. She, in fact, spent most of her life in bed, unable to get up. And she spent her time praying. People thought she was useless, but she was giving her time to praying for her brother and his missionary work and the gospel in India. And look how God has blessed it. There's true greatness. There is greatness to copy. John War and William Carey and his sister, I don't even know what her name was. People who at one time were obscure and thought pretty useless. Humble, not highly regarded, unnoticed by others, but serving. It's interesting, this teaching of Jesus at the Last Supper, this particular teaching here, is only in Luke's Gospel, not the other Gospels. That's, I think, significant because Luke's gospel specialises in telling us about humble people. And Luke particularly loves to tell us about women who were looked down on by society but commended by Jesus. I'll tell you about a woman, not in Luke's gospel, well after the Bible's time. She was called Monica. She was just an ordinary woman in a not very happy marriage. In fact, I suspect a very unhappy marriage because her husband laughed at her Christian faith and he wasn't faithful to her. And although unappreciated, she served as a wife and a mother and she quietly provided a Christian example to her husband and son who treated her badly. And she persistently prayed for them and she kept going at that Prayer and example, even when her son was, was in his 30s and still living a, an immoral life with no interest in God. That is true greatness. That's greatness to copy. And that would be true greatness even if it didn't have a happy ending. It did, by the way. In his 30s, that son whose name was Augustine, was converted and later became one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. True greatness is humble service. That's the way of Christ's kingdom. And that should be no surprise to us because, and here's the third point, because that's the way of the king. This is verses 27 to 30, the way of the king. Have a look again at verse 26 and the very last word of verse 26 is the word serves. And the word used for serves there is the word originally used for a servant serving at a meal table, serving you your food while you sit there because you're more important than him. He serves you your food. And Jesus takes that up in verse 27. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus was among his disciples as one who serves, and he's taking it as they know he's the greater one, but look, he's serving them. In fact, John 13 tells us this was literally true. At that meal, Jesus served his disciples, even going so far as to wash their feet, the service of the lowest servant. Of course, that is all a picture of his life being one of service. 
He said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't serve people in his spare time when it didn't impinge on his leisure activities. He gave himself completely to the service of others. The Son of God from heaven gave himself to the service of others. And of course he gave his life finally to serve others on that cross by paying for sins that weren't his responsibility, they were ours. He served then and he's still serving today. I'm sometimes quietly amused at our prayer meeting we have before the church services as there are some people who pray, uh, Lord, minister to us as we worship, as we listen to the Bible. Lord, minister to us. If you're one of those people, I hope you don't mind me being quietly amused. I think, I don't, what does that mean? It sounds very fancy, doesn't it? Minister. Sounds important and fancy. We have a minister for education, a minister for industry. What does it mean to minister? Well, it simply means to serve. So I'm quietly amused, thinking, does this person realise they're praying, Lord, serve us? That sounds rather cheeky. Is that a good prayer? Lord, serve us. Yes, it is. It is because he's the servant king. There's a verse in Hebrews that says he always lives to make intercession for us. It makes it sound like Jesus, his reason for existence is us and our needs. Now, of course, that isn't the case. He's God. We're the creatures. But it makes it sound like it's almost the case. He's living for us, almost. Oh, he's no he's now in glory. He's now exalted. He's no longer in his state of humiliation, but he's certainly still humble and self-giving and even serving. What a king we have. If you're in his kingdom, you have the best king. And your character should be like his, humbly serving not grasping to be considered great. Now, some people who are switched on might be thinking this. Yes, yes, but Jesus does get recognition. He does get praised. He does get considered great. He does get noticed. So is the parallel with Jesus really valid? Well, you're right. He does now get praised and I hope you praise him. But he had to wait for that. He didn't get it then. He was unnoticed, not highly thought of, in fact, despised and misunderstood. He gets the recognition now. And in that also, he's our model. This is how verse 28 to 30 apply to us. Now, the details of verse 28 to 30 are about the apostles. So we have to be careful here. We haven't, as verse 28 says, stood by Jesus in his trials. We won't, as verse 30 says, get to sit on thrones ruling the tribes of Israel. That's for the apostles as apostles. But the principle of these verses applies to us. And the principle is simple. Here's the simple principle. Just as with Jesus, look for your recognition and rest ahead 
not now. Did you get that? It's quite simple. Just as happened with Jesus, look for your recognition and rest ahead, not now. Jesus doesn't say your desire for recognition and rest is wrong. Squash that desire. We sometimes think that's what we should do, but we're unrealistic about our human nature. In fact, if you think about it, recognition and rest are there in Genesis 1 and 2, even before sin came in. They are not in themselves wrong, but Jesus says you've got them focused wrongly. Your desire for recognition and rest must be focused in the right place, heaven. And he says it in a way that fits together so well. I I hope you realise how well written the Bible is. Here they are at a meal table, what we now call the Lord's Supper, a meal that looks ahead to a greater meal. And at that meal, Jesus serves his disciples at the table. And then he says to them, now your life is to be one of service. And he uses a word for serving at the table. And then he says, and one day you will sit at the table and be served at my table in my kingdom. Do you see it there in verse 30? That's when you'll get your rest and recognition. Now, Jesus is not saying, don't ever take a moment's rest. How dare you just grind yourself down into powder with continual service? No, God's instituted a pattern of regular rest into our lives. But he is saying even that Sabbath weekly rest is a pointer to a greater rest. Get your focus in the right place. Look ahead for rest and recognition. Keep your eyes on the finish line. Now, do you know about the Tour de France? Big bike race in France. And as well as the whole race, it has intermediate sprints. Let's say halfway through a day, you can get an award for winning a certain sprint, an intermediate sprint halfway through the day. But you're not supposed to then, when you've won that award, stop and sit down. No, it's only partway through the race. You keep going. You're not supposed to have your eyes on a deck chair at the side of the race 300 yards before the finish line. We must have our eyes on recognition and rest that is beyond the finish line. That's where our goal is. That's where we get our recognition and rest. Do notice, as we find so often in the Bible, the Christian life cannot be lived without believing in eternity. The Christian life cannot be sustained without having your focus on life with Christ in eternity. Don't try to keep going without your focus there. You won't manage it. It won't be the real Christian life. And that life with Christ in eternity is given by him, Jesus himself. Here it is in verse 30. He invites us to eat and drink at his table. He welcomes us to enjoy his company in his kingdom. He says, come to the marriage feast, not just as a guest, but as the bride, part of his church, the bride. So keep that goal in sight. Keep your eyes fixed there on him, being with him. And along the way, 
be a little model of the king. Have the characteristics of his kingdom. Be an example of true greatness. Humble, not grasping for notice, humble service.